Welcome back to Origins and Evolution. We just finished up an absolutely incredible Cancer and Evolution Symposium hosted out of Boston, but via Zoom it went out globally. October 14th through the 16th featured George Church, Matthias Mann, Azra Raza, Lee Hood, Bob Weinberg, and Dennis Noble, along with Jim Shapiro, amongst others. Dimitar Seselov was on the advisory committee and gave a great and informative talk on the Harvard Origins of Life initiative and how it relates to the evolution of cancer. We invite everyone who has a, a scientific interest in cancer or who has been personally affected by it to please visit the symposium website at www.cancerevolution.org. That's www.cancerevolution.org. Azra Raza brought to light the stalling progress in treating late stage or metastasizing cancers. As between 2002 and 2014, 72 new drugs were introduced but they only prolonged patient survival by 2.1 months on average. She also pointed out that approximately two-thirds of the novel drugs generated no significant progress in patient survival. Frank, what were some of the major and key insights from the symposium? Well, there were many, but uh, very fundamentally, I think there was complete consensus among all 30 speakers that cancer must be understood as a real-time quasi-evolutionary disease and unless we understand that cancer is a, an evolutionary phenomenon, we cannot really make meaningful and sustainable further progress in the war on cancer. This recognition that we must think of cancer in evolutionary terms has major implications for cancer research, but also for cancer early detection and diagnosis, as well as for treatment strategies and outcomes. So, why is cancer considered an evolutionary phenomenon? It has been recognized, perhaps only in the last decade, and uh, the ma mainstream of the field still hasn't recognized it yet. Cancer are like quasi-species of cancer cells that live in our human bodies, in the hosts, in the patients, and they follow their own real-time evolutionary playbook as if they were a separate species, an invasive species, even though they have the same origin as the other cells in our body. And um, many of you may have heard of um, so-called driver or sometimes passenger mutations that drive the microevolution in so-called oncogenes or cancer or cancer genes or in cancer suppression genes. But cancer evolution really goes a lot further. It is also driven and that is much more surprising, by active cell biology processes, not only by random mutations. These active processes include major gene, chromosomal, and entire genome modifications in macroevolution of cancer cells. This leads to heterogeneous multiple clones of cancer cells that have modified genes, genomes, and also karyotypes. A karyotype is the order of genes or the topological coding on chromosomes. So it's not only that the genes are a convenient one-dimensional array of genetic information, the three-dimensional rearrangement of the genome and of the chromosomes really matters in biology in general and in cancer in particular. One of the subjects that was covered was how evolving cancer cells exhibit frequent whole genome doubling or polyploidy. 
Uh, does this tie in to your discussion of uh, chromosomes and their relation to cancer? Absolutely. It has been discovered that uh, this whole genome doubling or aneuploidies, where you have an extra chromosome, or polyploidy, where all of your chromosomes are doubled, tetraploidy is sometimes the term that's being used. It's not only used in cancer, it's also something that's being observed in wound healing and in uh, embryo development. There's many parallels, but it certainly is used by cell biology in cancer. And as, you know, cancer cells follow pretty established organismal evolution processes for survival uh, when they are under stress. And the stress could be due to an injury. It could be due to a viral inflammation or infection. Or it could be due to chemotherapy or radiation therapy or immunotherapy. And when cancer cells are stressed, they, for instance, actively downregulate their own DNA replication error correction. And in that manner, they generate more genetic or genomic and karyotype variability for selection. So they can actively accelerate their own evolution under stress. This is not just somatic mutations. Cancer cell proliferation can be so rapid that the selection, the Darwin's natural, natural selection, cannot even keep up with it to select the single fittest clone. So many aspects of cancer cell evolution under rapid proliferation at times are non-Darwinian. One of the more surprising and, and interesting aspects were the discussions surrounding giant polyploidy cancer cells. Yes, these giant cells had been observed by pathologists uh, for nearly 100 years, but they've been mostly ignored, or people thought they were just dead ends and giant cells with multiple nuclei. Um, they thought those would simply die away and they didn't pay any attention to them. We now notice that these are the sleeper cells, buff cancer, or sometimes also called the stem cells. At least they have stem cancer stem cell qualities. They're quiescent, they're therapy-resistant, and they stick around when other cancer cells get you know, wiped out and extinct, so to speak, by aggressive chemotherapy or radiation or immunotherapy. But then they tend to proliferate again and generate smaller therapy-resistant and very often aggressively metastasizing small cancer progeny cells. So these PGCCs, or polyploid giant cancer cells, only recently has it been recognized how important they are in this real-time evolutionary arms race of cancer versus therapy. They are benefiting... Cancer didn't just invent that. They are benefiting from three and a half billion years of evolution of the most efficient evolutionary processes in organismal evolution. And in fact, it has also been recognized that just like in organismal evolution, cancer cells themselves rapidly evolve towards improved evolvability or evolutionary flexibility, if you like, as a trait. Can you talk a little bit more about why that trait makes cancer so hard to treat? Yes. In many of our therapy approaches, and we'll come back to them later, um, it makes it very, it, it makes single monotherapies against a single target um, a losing proposition. Eventually, when you treat with the same um, treatment strategy only, with the same chemotherapy, for instance, Eventually, you can almost predict that a fast 
evolving, a rapidly evolving cancer will find ways around even a maximum dose that you're trying to administer. Generally, that means we have to be flexible and adaptive in our therapy strategies rather than concluding, oh, wow, this drug is working now. Let's keep more and more of that drug and simply waiting till the pa patient is, has recurring cancer, in which case it is probably too late. And they very often have therapy resistance and resistant and metastasizing cancers. So we need to anticipate that cancer is an evolutionary disease. Together with cancer cell epigenome and transcriptome changes, cancer evolution also changes cancer cell phenotypes. Yes, here we're talking about a molecular phenotype. And usually when we talk about the genome or the epigenome, this is the DNA, the modifications to the DNA, and perhaps the transcriptome, i.e. the RNA or messenger RNA, but also the proteins or the peptide antigens on the surface of the cancer cells or various post-translational modifications from phosphorylation to the all-important glycan structures or glycosylation structures, which is a fancy word for the sugar coat or the sugar coverings, uh, as well as other fats, lipids, and metabolites change in cancer. And looking at this molecular phenome type, as well as the exosome and the extracellular vehicles, vesicles that are coming out of cancer cells are all, it was recognized at the symposium, are all really quite important as we try to understand fast cancer evolution. We, we mustn't just look at mutations. We have to look at large genome and karyotype rearrangements. And we can't just look at the genes and genome and even the karyotype only. Even that is still myopic. We have to look at the entire cell, including other functional and information-carrying biomolecules. Cancer's evolutionary processes do not only change cancer themselves, but they also reshape the tumor microenvironment. How does this make treating cancer all that much more difficult? That's, that's a very important point. We cannot just even look at the cancer cells themselves. That's not sufficient either. We have to look at the tumor microenvironment, or TME, that you were just mentioning, and how do they Cancer cells affect the host or the patient, as we say, when the host is a human being, right? And uh, it does turn out that there is like an evolutionary niche construction by these cancer cells. They can make the stroma or the extracellular matrix or ECM, i.e. parts that we normally don't even think of as part of the cancers. They're not part of the cancer cells but they are kind of part of the cancer disease. Cancer cells can only lead to cancer disease if the patient's tumor microenvironment, the stroma, i.e. the tissue surrounding the cancers, and the extracellular matrix enable the cancer cells to lead to malignant cancer. So studying the host, the immune response of the host, of the patients, how that gets modulated by various types of cancer therapy that can either suppress, that's the goal, cancer, or it can also facilitate progression of the cancer. Sometimes immunotherapy leads to hyperprogression, the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. And of course, very often, these therapy or hyperprogressing cells lead to very aggressive invasiveness, as we call it, by cancer cell, which, which leads to metastasis in other organs. 
So we have to study not only the genes and the genome of the cancer cells or the cancer cell molecular phenotype, we have to study the immune system, the tumor microenvironment, the extracellular matrix of the patient, and we have to look at the evolutionary arms race between the host and, its immu and his immune system or her immune system and the rapidly evolving cancer cells themselves. It is incredibly complex, but if we continue to think about cancer in simplistic terms, our progress will be limited because we're going to continue to go down a lot of dead ends. Some of the speakers also discussed the urgent need to track cancer longitudinally with novel biomarkers. Why does this potentially hold the key to making our next major jump in lowering the mortality rate of cancer? Right. Not only do we need biomarkers for new targets, perhaps for new drug targets, for new diagnostics, but we need, and Ann Barker has emphasized that, the former deputy of the National Cancer Institute, who was one of the um, very well-known speakers, we also need novel sets of biomarkers of cancer evolution if we cannot assess how cancer evolves, if we are blind to that. Does it evolve? How much does, how quickly and how much does it evolve? And to what extent has it evolved? We will be in the dark about how to diagnose and how to treat it appropriately. So not only do we look for the traditional search for biomarkers that can give us a new diagnostics or new drug target, but also we need to look for biomarkers of cancer evolution as a process itself. What are the implications of cancer evolution for early detection? Well, early detection, we all know, in, along with prevention, don't smoke, avoid obesity, you know, avoid viral infections and many other things that are known to lead to cancer. Um, prevention, before detection even, is probably the most important way that society can make progress at a population level to reduce the incidence of cancer. But coming back to your question, we then, of course, have by far the best chances with treating cancer if we can detect it very early, preferably at the precancerous stage, before it becomes a clinical stage one, two, three, or four cancer, or at a minimum in early stages one and two when cancer is becoming a clinical disease, but is not so advanced yet that it gets very difficult and much more toxic to treat it. So what do we need for early detection? We need new tests that require, have very good specificity and also good tissue of origin localization. So we're not just scaring potential patients. You have cancer. Well, what is it and where is it? We have no idea. That's not very helpful. That just puts them into a panic. So if we can tell them you have this type of cancer in this organ, we need good specificity and localization. Even more importantly, if we give someone a test and want to tell them that you do not have cancer, we'd better be pretty sure about that. So we need outstanding sensitivity and further improved positive predictive value, PPV, and there, we're not that good yet. There, we need a lot more progress to get better sensitivity and improved predictive value. Finally, we also have to consider something that's not obvious to most people. Most people often study 
advanced cancer patients or recurring cancer patients to learn how to detect cancer. Well, cancer evolution says cancer isn't equal to cancer, even if it's in the same organ. Same prostate or breast cancer isn't the same old cancer. When it reoccurs, it will have evolved further. So what we learn from cancers when we monitor MRD or minimum residual disease, or we do cancer treatment monitoring, or we monitor for disease recurrence, it is likely that at a molecular level, the cancer is really quite different from the very first cancer cells or precancerous cells that we wish to detect to avoid getting to a stage three or stage four or metastasizing cancer. Is it fair to say that nothing on earth when put under stress evolves quite as rapidly as cancer? Uh, I'd say cancer evolution is very, very similar to very rapid bacterial or viral evolution. Keep in mind, viral are not even con- viruses are not even considered alive, although they of course have biological information and evolvability. And we are reminded by the HIV virus for which there is no vaccine after more than 30 years of its discovery and the present quest to find therapies and vaccines against the SARS-CoV-2 virus, that viral evolution can be very quick. It's one of our problems. Also, bacterial evolution can be very rapid, and bacteria divide very, very rapidly. So in, in some sense, these unicellular, multi-clonal cancer species that in some ways seem like invaders in our body and cause cancer except they haven't come from the outside. They've kind of split off from the organismal control of our body and now behave like a cancer quasi-species or multiple cancer quasi-species in a patient, in a cancer patient, can be thought of as being very similar in their evolutionary characteristics to fast bacterial or viral evolution. Can you please explain the term multiclonal? Multiclonal means that the initial cancer cells has split into multiple species of cancer cells or multiple clones. Multiple clones comes before something turns into multiple species. Let's say two different dogs are still the same species, but they're probably considered multiple, two breeds are considered multiple dogs or a poodle and uh, and a German shepherd are two different clones of the species dog um, and just the same way different bacteria, or in this case, different cancers, um, cancer cells evolve into, they can branch into different clones. And these clones, some of these clones may be susceptible to a chemo or targeted or immunotherapy, whereas others may not be susceptible and may have become resistant. Clones may find it easier to be shed into the bloodstream and then reach other parts of the human body where if they can manage to get adhesion and invasiveness in the local tissue, eventually they can accumulate and metastasize. So that at least illustrates the concept of multiclonal cancer species. We're not just dealing with a single enemy, otherwise a single weapon or drug might do the job and finish off the enemy. But we have multiclonal, multiple types of cancers that all keep evolving and branching, especially under therapeutic stress which is why so many times we make spectacular progress in fighting cancer just to see a patient experience cancer recurrence and, uh, and then a much tougher battle 
the second time around. That often is leads to the patient's death if they get into stage four or metastasis. That is the continued truth and, and sad news about the incredible suffering that we all continue to experience among our friends, families, or loved ones, or people we know with cancer, despite all the headline news about how much progress has been made and how many hundreds of billions of dollars have been invested. In many areas, we're not thinking about cancer properly, and we're pursuing dead ends and not adopting the new strategies that we should be adopting, given that cancer inherently has to be diagnosed and treated as an evolutionary disease. That seems like a uh, great and natural point to wrap up part one of the Cancer and Evolution Symposium. Uh, please join us again next time for a briefer episode in part two as we wrap up what are the implications of cancer evolution for therapy strategies. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode of Origins and Evolution. Please join us again next time for part two. Thank you very much. <laughs>